Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, episode number nine. Jamie Eads here with you as always. You can reach us at the Drum Shuffle Podcast at gmail.com. We love getting your emails. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com, and you can always find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. We have a fantastic episode for you today. We are going to be joined by the super incredible Nate Morton in just one moment, so stay tuned. Lost Cabos Drumsticks may be the best kept secret from drummers today. Lost Cabos Drumsticks makes the finest tools to touch a drummer's hands in the business. The best news, almost every popular stick size is available in both white hickory and red hickory. If you don't know what red hickory is, it's made from the heartwood of the hickory tree, unlike regular white hickory, which is made from sapwood. Red hickory drumsticks will hold up to even the hardest hitting drummers. Their durability comes from the density of the wood, but they do not sacrifice the feel. Please visit LosCabosDrumsticks.com to learn more about their products. And don't forget to ask at your favorite retailer for Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys, I'm not going to bore you for very long because we are super excited to have Nate Morton joining us here in just a moment. Nate Morton, of course, the drummer on The Voice. This guy is literally seen by 15 to 20 million people every single week on The Voice. You may also know Nate from his work on Rockstar NXS and Rockstar Supernova, a couple of other series that he was the the drummer on. Uh, He has also performed with, get this, Natalie Cole, Cher, Paul Stanley, you name it, this guy has been behind the kit. Uh, So without further introduction. He needs no introduction, really. Let's welcome Nate Morton to the Drum Shuffle. Hey, Nate, good afternoon. How are you today? I am wonderful, Jamie. How are you, buddy? Man, I'm doing good, doing good. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Drum Shuffle. We really do appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely, my pleasure. I am uh, I'm fortunate to have anyone who uh, cares what I think. Well, you know, I don't think that's true. Somehow I just I don't believe that, Um, you know, as a guy myself that's been playing the drums for 25, 26, 28, something I I can't even keep count anymore playing drums this long. I certainly want to know what you have to say today. So. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Cool. Well, I know the voice uh, has just recently uh, come back on the air for a new season. So I know this is really busy time for you. So again, thanks for your time. But Nate, what we typically like to do here on the drum shuffle, start us out um, in in the beginning. I know you grew up in Maryland, kind of equidistant from D.C. and Baltimore. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and, and how you got into drumming. Oh, sure, sure. Well, uh, for, for the real sort of uh, 
genesis of it or the, the, the beginning, you would have to go back a little further than my time in Maryland. You would have to go all the way back to when I was about four or five years old. And I lived uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, Music City. Okay. Music City. Yes. Yes. Um, although at the time I was not, I, you know, I wasn't really big on the scene at four years old. Um, I, no one really, uh, I was getting a lot of calls then, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, so, I uh, grew up in, uh, Nashville and my parents both went to Tennessee state university and I'm not sure how familiar you are, how familiar you are with, um, Tennessee state university, but I mean, they have one of those, uh, sort of, um, a uh, historically black college and university, you know, marching bands. Sure. And so my folks used to go to the games and essentially the game was an afterthought compared to the halftime show. Cause you wanted to see what the band was going to do at halftime. Absolutely. So I sort of grew up, my first experience to sort of drums really was seeing those drum lines, um, you know, Florida A&M and, and Southern University and Howard and, and Tennessee State University. And so that was the first thing when I was like, this is rad, like seeing a marching band and they're coming on the field like, and just really being blown away and enamored with that. So that combined with my favorite uh, TV show at the time was The Muppet Show, and I would watch it you know, religiously, and I would never miss an episode, and I would always <laughs> tune in, and I would always wait anxiously to see Animal. And I know that I'm not alone in that. Uh, I know that there are a lot of drummers out there who got their primary inspiration as kids watching Animal from The Muppet Show, and so I am one of those as well. So, essentially, the combination of Animal on The Muppet Show and seeing these great uh, marching band drum lines sort of inspired me and sort of leaned me towards drumming. And so from that point, I started, you know, building drum sets out of boxes and buckets and stuff around my house when I was about five, I guess, five, six. And then from there, eventually my folks got me a real uh, drum set, quote unquote, real drum set. And, uh, and yeah, that was the beginning. That was the very, very beginning. And then I, I just played to records all day long. And uh, there you go. I mean, it's the story of, you know, I would say 85 percent of us that, that are that are still drumming. You know, I mean, it's you 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 know, you, you just start banging on stuff and then your parents finally relent and, and buy you that first kit. Um, sure. And I was fortunate too. you know, I did again, I did the typical, you know, the typical kid thing, which is that I would pull pots and pans out of the cabinet and bang on them with salad spoons. And I was fortunate that, um, that my folks let me do that. You know, I'm sure that there's plenty of kids who their folks would go, you know, Tommy, stop doing that. Put that away, you know, and go watch TV or whatever. Sure. But, uh, yeah, I was fortunate that my mom tolerated that and uh, tolerated the racket throughout all of my life of me having a drum set, you know, in my bedroom or in the garage and playing all day. So, yeah, I was very I was very fortunate in that regard. We are all fortunate that our parents put up with that stuff. Um, you know, <laughs> my mother has a, a very special place in heaven when she passes, I'm sure. Uh, that <laughs> and I'll just well, It's interesting too. Part of my part of my upbringing uh, before when, so so I was born in Nashville. I lived there for some time and then at a certain point around 10 or 11 or so, I spent some time growing up in Kent, Ohio. And the area that I grew up in wasn't, sorry, the area that I lived in in Kent, Ohio, wasn't necessarily the, the greatest area in the world. And so we lived in an apartment complex called Silver Meadows, 
which was sort of lovingly referred to as Silver Ghettos. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I would be playing drums, you know, li- literally I had my drums set up on a, in a third floor apartment. I had my drums set up in my parents' um, no, wait, I'm sorry. That was when we were in Maryland. So in, in Ohio, they were in my room. Okay. So I'm playing in a third floor apartment playing drums. And of course, you know that it's resonating throughout the entire building and everyone can hear me. And at one point, uh, my mom asked a neighbor and kind of was like, hey, I really hope, you know, my son playing drums all day isn't bugging the heck out of you and so on. And the neighbor's general philosophy was, if we hear him playing drums, we know that he's not out in the neighborhood doing something he shouldn't be doing. Oh, that's cool. And so... Yeah. So, you know, that was that was good. That was good. Yeah, for sure. Well, and, you know, I know that um, your path uh, led to Berkeley College of Music uh, up in Boston. Um, tell us a little bit. Now, I don't know. Were you um, doing marching band in, in middle school and high school and things like that? Tell us how you ended up um, getting up to, to, to Berkeley. You got it. So I was taught to hold drumsticks like when I was in fourth grade or so. Um, And that was about the only private instruction, private drum instruction uh, that I had had from the time that I, you know, started playing when I was six or so up through middle school. Now, middle school, um, I did play in band. Uh, I was looking for any outlet. Like by the time I was in middle school, I was pretty much, you know, very, I was really dedicated to music. And so I was looking for any opportunity to play. So anywhere I got to play, I would play. So I was in band. Um, when it was time to make the transition from middle school to high school, at some point I got like, there was a, like an audition piece. If memory serves, there's an audition piece for anyone entering high school band as a drummer to learn to play. And then that was how they were going to determine, you know, where they were going to put you or what instrument they were going to put you on. And it was a piece more complex than anything that that I was familiar with up to that point. And so while I knew how to read music, because I actually started taking piano lessons when I was eight, um, the idea of applying that level of reading to drums and and rudiments and, and, and those things at that time was a little advanced for me. So I found a drum instructor Somewhere towards the end of middle school, an amazing drum instructor named Grant Menefee, who taught uh, and still teaches to this day out of his home uh, in Catonsville, Maryland. And so I connected with Grant. Grant helped me learn the material that I had to learn for this audition and then continued to be my instructor throughout all of high school uh, until I attended college. So it just so happens that Grant is a Berkeley College of Music graduate himself. And so while I was studying with him and while I was studying drum set, the things that he was putting in front of me were, you know, the things that he had learned along his way, part of which came through things that he had learned at Berkeley. Gotcha. So, right. So somewhere along the line, Grant said to me, you know, if you really worked your butt off at this and gave it everything you got and, you know, committed to it, there's a real possibility that you could actually go and do this for a career. And that was all it took. Like (laughs) that was enough motivation right there. Like I, it was like, really, you know? And so, so I, when I finished high school, I went to university of Maryland because at the time I was doing pretty good in math and science. And if you do pretty good in math and science, they tend to, you know, kind of funnel you towards engineering or something of that nature. And so 
I received a, uh, an engineering scholarship uh, to go to University of Maryland, which I did for one year, which is about all it took for me to realize that I was not a born engineer. <laughs> um, Fair enough. Yeah, one that was yeah engineering calculus five mornings a week at eight a.m. Yeah, no, uh, that's, no, no, and no. That's tough sledding right there. <laughs> uh, so, so I transferred by uh, my I changed my major from about halfway through the year. I changed my major from engineering to music, and then I sort of immediately realized that. I needed to put myself in an environment where I was going to be around more young musicians and, 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 and sort of a more vibrant uh, contemporary music scene. And so Berkeley, you know, seemed like the obvious choice. Um, I talked to Grant a lot about it. And after a year at Maryland, I ended up transferring to Berkeley College of Music, where, you know, I, I was fortunate to study with great instructors, learn a lot of tremendous things, take advantage of their amazing music library, um, and all of the different facilities there. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I consider, I consider going to Berkeley tied. Berkeley isn't a tie for number one. I used to say it was the second most important thing, but now I'm going to say it's tied for number one with the other most important thing that I ever did to advance my music career, which was, you want to guess? You want to guess what the, what the, what the second most important thing I ever did was? I'm going to guess moving to LA, but. The- Boom. Yeah. You win the prize. That's it. So going to Berkeley, I used to say, like I said, I used to say Berkeley was the second most important thing and moving to L.A. was the first. And then sometimes I would flip flop it. I would say, you know, uh, Berkeley was the most important thing and moving to L.A. was the second. But I really, in fairness, it's, it's the two of them, because in my own walk, in my own little path, um, I don't think that I would have experienced the things that I've been fortunate to experience had I not done both of those things. Going to Berkeley and staying in Boston, I don't think things would have panned out. And moving to L.A. without having gone to Berkeley, I, I'm not sure that things would have panned out. So I've been very fortunate, and I was lucky to do those two things. And I think that those two things in conjunction sort of led me down the path that I've been on for these last several years. So it was the right combination for Nate Morton. It really was. It really was. You know, And I, I don't mean to sound like a commercial for Berkeley, but I mean, I don't think that it's, I don't think that Berkeley is matched by any other school in the world. And that's not to say that there aren't other good contemporary music schools. I just don't think that there are, I don't think that there's another school that has as much of everything (laughs) that Berkeley has, if you understand what I'm saying. Um, Give you a quick example. There are great schools that will have their, their, their kick butt, you know, um, Studio A, you know, recording Studio A, and it's got the, the nicest board and the nicest gear and the best mics, and it's like the, 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 the shining star of the music department. Okay, Berkeley has 12 of those. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, well, it's I'm- that kind of thing, you know. Um, or, or, you know, Berkeley, quite frankly, may have more than 12 of those now because it's been several years, obviously, since I was a student there. But um, it's that kind of thing. You know, there, there are colleges where it's like, oh, man, you know, uh, so-and-so, like the, this, this famous guy is the main teacher in the drum department. I want to go to this college to study with that guy. Okay, everyone 
teaching in Berkeley's drum department has a long list of professional credits and things that they've done. So that's all I mean. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't mean to take away from other schools and, and, and departments that they have, but in my experience, nothing, nothing rivals uh, Berkeley. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, growing up, you know, in central Kentucky, you know, my two biggest dreams were, you know, either Berkeley or Musicians Institute, you know, because you you could pick up basically any record in the 80s um, or even early 90s, see who the drummer is on the record, and they went to one of those two schools. That's yeah, that's a good point. You know, that's so so that was always my thing was I want to go to one of those two schools. Now, of course, I was nowhere near good enough to get into either of them. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, but I don't know that that's the case, Jamie. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I don't know. I, mean, I wouldn't say that. Well, um, it, it, it didn't work out that way for me. But, you know, it, here I am, you know, on the phone with Nate Morton. So, I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> life is oh, good. And you know what, too, Jamie? Here's the thing. I again, I don't want to come off like a jerk that's not to suggest that if you don't go to berkeley you're somehow doomed or something and it's not to suggest that the only way to succeed is to go to berkeley i don't mean to suggest that at all sure um i just mean that if someone is looking at a music college um there's a lot going on there to uh to, to, to get into at Berkeley. That's all. Sure. Well, I mean, it was the right combination for you, obviously. And, you know, um, after you left Berkeley and, and went out to California, um, you know, you, you landed a, a pretty awesome gig uh, right off the bat. And, you know, I, I know that you made some relationships in some of those first gigs that continue to this day. Um, so why don't you t- tell us a little bit about that transition out to California and some of the first gigs that you landed, you know, fresh out of college? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I didn't immediately move. So I didn't, I didn't graduate. And then upon walking out of the, uh, the hall, hop into my already packed car and, you know, make my way to, to LA. Right. Um, I hung around Boston for, let's see, I graduated in 94. <laughs> a long time ago. I graduated in 94. And then I continued to live and work and play in Boston for about another three or four years. Uh, and it wasn't until 98 or 99 or so that I moved out to LA. And I had been out, you know, out to LA before, sort of just traveling on gigs and so on. Um, but when I moved here, I definitely had this feeling of like, this is where I should be musically. I just felt like it was the right vibe. I mean, graduating Berkeley, graduating college as a musician, I was sort of weighing, I'm like, okay, there's Nashville, New York, LA. And at the time, Atlanta, and perhaps still now, Atlanta is a, is a destination, um, for aspiring musicians, but it was Berk. Sorry. It was, uh, it was New York, LA, Nashville, Atlanta. I wasn't fully convinced that Atlanta was everything that others were convinced that it was. And at the time, my heart wasn't set on playing country music. And at the time, my heart wasn't set on playing straight ahead jazz. Right. And so I felt like, you know, if I'm going to struggle, if I'm going to struggle and I'm going to be a broke musician, I might as well do it where it's 85 degrees and sunny every day <laughs> and there's warm, sandy beaches. You know what I mean? Sure. So, so I made my way out to L.A. and I felt very at home uh, immediately. 
so in terms of transitioning, um, I was just very lucky that a confluence of circumstances kind of led me to some auditions. I met a cat out here named Barry Squire, who is famous now, basically, as a, as a guy who puts together bands and so on. Um, and I, I sort of came on his radar through a variety of different people. But it was Barry who called me for my first auditions. And so one of the first auditions that I ever did was for an artist who uh, had a single called Kiss the Rain. Her name was Billy Myers. And I was fortunate to land that opportunity. And, you know, I mean, that was a really exciting and, and, and just, uh, I don't even know, just a multifaceted experience because, because Billy was a new artist, not only was she out and touring and playing clubs or supporting bigger artists or playing on radio shows like radio festivals where there's, you know, 15 bands throughout the day. So I got to not only play with Billy, but then I got to hang around and see all these other bands. There was also um, a lot of television work because, like I said, she was a new artist. And so we played the Today Show and Good Morning America and Jay Leno and Rosie O'Donnell's show at the time. So... You know, that was like my first, I think that was my first L.A. gig, perhaps. Um, and then from there, you know, I just kind of tried to keep doing what I was doing, which is continue to meet new players, more players, play in as many possibility, sorry, in as many, you know, opportunities as I, as I was given, um, stay in touch with people and sort of network. And slowly over time, you get another call here to do one little thing. You get another call here to do one little thing. And... You just keep doing what you're doing, and hopefully you manage to sort of, you know, snowball that into uh, steady work and, and, a, and a career. Sure. Well, I know at one point, and I don't know how far ahead I'm jumping, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but but you were, mm-hmm. you were playing with Vanessa uh, Carlton. And, you know, I, I think Sasha uh, w- was her bass player as well. Now, now for folks that don't know who Sasha Kristoff is, just a monster bass player, but he was on the rock star show with you in the house band. And now he's playing bass, uh, on the voice in the house band for the voice. So, um, you know, I, I again, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but that's a relationship you built in one of your early gigs, um, you know, with Vanessa's band that you're still playing with Sasha to this day, which I think is really cool. Okay, so Jamie, you've used a particular word now a couple of times. Okay. And it's a very important word. And it's the word is relationship. Oh, yeah. And I really like that word because it's, it, 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 it plays its way into a lot of aspects of what we do. A lot of what we do is based on relationships. So, yes, my relationship with Sasha goes all the way back to 2002 when we were touring with Vanessa Carlton. And he and I, prior to 2002, knew each other because he, as well as I, we were, we were both kind of in that same circle of guys who were turning up on these various auditions. And it just so happened that it wasn't until Vanessa Carlton that we both wound up on a gig together. So, uh, so yes, I met Sasha. I, yeah, I, I'm thinking it was earlier than that, but I played, sorry, I said I met, I meant to say I played with Sasha. Um, yeah. in Vanessa's band in 2002. That's exactly right. And, and that's, and you didn't jump too far ahead because okay. in the four years or so, three years preceding, I played with a couple of other artists, but yeah, Vanessa was definitely, 
uh, a big deal. She was my biggest gig to have done up to that point. Right. And and you did quite a bit of touring with her as well. I mean, I, I know you guys uh, went to Europe. Um, you, you did quite a bit of touring. So how, how long were you actually uh, a part of that band? Um, well, I think that Vanessa would have worked off and on for, I feel like it would have been at least a year, maybe a little more. Um, yeah, because I actually, I actually was not on at the very beginning. Um, there okay. was another drummer there uh, before me, and then when he moved on, uh, they had another go round of auditions, and then that was kind of when I came on board. So, uh, so yeah, it would have been around a year, I think. Okay, well, and, and for those um, who are listening today that don't know who Vanessa is, um, there are just countless great videos out on YouTube, um, you know, certainly go do a search because that's some really good playing by everybody in the band. Um, you know, it's, it's mm. really cool music. Um, so if you're unfamiliar, go look it up. It's, it's great stuff. Well, and I got to go out and play Abe Laborial Jr.'s you know, drum tracks every night because he actually <laughs> tracked that record. So that was a lot of fun for me. I, I'm I'm sure, you know, um, and, you know, pun fully intended. Those are some big shoes to fill. It's funny too. Abe, I just have to say this. Abe is like, he, okay, first of all, it's almost unfair that he's, such a great player and such a nice guy, which it, it actually bothers me because when you're a really good player and a really nice guy, then I just, I can't find a reason to hate you. Even though I want to, I just can't. And I just have to like you and it just makes me angry. Right. Well. <laughs> so Abe, Abe and I shared one year at Berkeley together. He was, a, he was finishing the first year that I got there. And yeah, even then, I mean, at Berkeley, I, you know, he, he, he was a monster just a ridiculous player. Yeah. Well, he still is. And you know, his work with, uh, with Sir Paul McCartney is pretty yes. incredible. You know, I mean, I just, what else, what else can you say? You know, um, but I digress cause we could geek out on that for an hour at least. Um, yeah. So after the Vanessa Carlton gig, I'm assuming at some point this, um, this show idea uh, from Mark Burnett called Rockstar NXS. I'm guessing that got on your radar pretty soon after the Vanessa gig. Is that correct? Uh, let me think. Let me think. Let me think. I went from Vanessa. I'm, I'm so old. I'm trying to think <laughs> what else would have been in there. Um, yeah, I think that's about right. It would have gone from Vanessa to uh, Rockstar. There were other things in there, but in terms of the next sort of big, you know, thing, uh, probably Rockstar. Yeah. Okay. So, well, I'm sorry, the reason why I'm, I'm I'm so hesitant is because I also work with a great artist named Poe, um, and I and I literally my brain is failing me at the moment because I can't remember if I did Poe before Vanessa or the other way around. Okay. So I'm trying to remember what I would have been doing right before Rockstar came around. And I honestly can't remember if it was Poe or Vanessa. Um, but yes, but the Rockstar audition came around at the end 
of, no, actually at the very beginning of 2005. So, you know, in effort of full disclosure, that's how I found out about Nate Morton was that show. Um, That's Mm. where I first saw you playing. Um, My wife, uh, Lisa, lovely Miss Lisa, was a huge NXS fan, um, as we all were. I was, too. You know, I mean, that was a, a big seminal band, you know. Um, and when this show came on, you know, it's on CBS, um, 2005, I, I guess I was like, well, I've got to watch this. You know, I mean, it's, it, it, it's a reality show about a band, you know, and, and they're searching for their new singer and they're going to, you know, kind of have a, a, a competition. And it was, you know, it was different than, you know, American Idol. It was different than, than the others, you know, that were around at that time. Well, one of the things I, you know, one of the things I recall most about that show was that um, if you tuned into an episode and saw a performance, it, as you just pointed out, it felt like you were seeing a band performing. Like it felt like you were, you, like you just tuned into, uh, you know, um, a, a DVD of a concert somewhere uh, because the band was on stage. The band was center stage. There was, you know, lots of interaction with the artist and the band. And it felt very much like that. Unlike, you know, at the time American Idol where the band might've been silhouetted, you know, way in the background or, or perhaps not even seen at all. And so now with the voice, the voice is kind of somewhere in between the voice. We're not always on, but at times when they want to feature a band member or they want to feature a particular look or whatever, then yeah, they do, you know, stage us downstage more visibly. So, um, so yeah, but Rockstar was definitely interesting. Rockstar was funny because the drums, I remember Mark Burnett was just like, the drums go in the middle of the stage. The drums go in the middle of the stage. That's where drums go. Drums go on a drum riser <laughs> in the middle of the stage. And so because of that, and because whenever Brooke Burke would talk to the performer after they had you know done their song, they were standing straight in front of the drum set. So I was always on camera. So I had to be careful not to ever be, you know, picking my nose or making a funny <laughs> face or goofing off because I was always on camera. So that's my that's my memory of that, uh, you know, that particular situation. Well, I will tell you this, you know, we tuned into that very first episode, you know, and I'm sitting in my living room and I literally turned to my wife and I said, I don't know who this drummer is, but my God, he's awesome. I mean, that that was <laughs> that was, you know, because and I think you probably figured out, hey, I'm right smack dab in the middle of the stage. I'm going to have some screen time. You were you know, you were doing the stick twirls, the stick flips, you know, it was um you know, so so I think you um, took full advantage of your camera time. May I say that? But um, <laughs> it, it was just such a cool show. And, you know, it it really did allow the band to be kind of a focal point. It wasn't just like another, you know, sort of half karaoke with a live band sort of thing. And it was right. it, it was pretty awesome. Um, but you know, you guys were going by the name, the house band. And of course, 
I, you know, I'm curious to know, um, you know, Sasha and Paul, who are still with you, you know, over at The Voice, those guys were in that band for for Rockstar NXS and Rockstar Supernova, which was, um, you know, Tommy Lee and Jason Newstead and those guys, you know, trying to find a singer. Um, so did you guys all go audition for, for the show at the same time or did it was it kind of happenstance that you guys have just ended up being together all, you know, for all these different iterations of, of television? Well, that's a great question. The first time, as I mentioned to you before, that I got to work with Sasha was Vanessa Carlton. The first time that I got to work with Paul was Rockstar a couple of years later. So the way that that audition happened was basically the powers that be tapped you know, a certain number of musical directors. I don't, I don't actually even remember or know uh, how many exactly, probably 10, 12, uh, and essentially said, hey, each of you musical directors, put together a band. There's this show, put together a band, come and do this audition for, you know, for this show. And so it just so happened that the musical director that I was called by was a bass player, a guy named Derek Frank, Someone called Derek and said, hey, Derek, put together a band to come and do this audition for this show. And so Derek called me and said, hey, I'm doing this audition. You want to be in the band? And I said, but of course. (laughs) And once that happened and once they heard those 10 or 12 or however many bands there were, the powers that be sort of mixed and matched musicians from that point. And so it was the result of that mixing and matching that found me in a band with Paul and Sasha. Okay. And so that's, yeah, so that, that was the, that was the beginning of that relationship. Okay. Well, and great band. I mean, and obviously, and we'll get into this in just a little bit. Um, but I got to get a, I got to get a gotcha question in here first. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Look, look out. So around this same time, you were also doing a talk show, um, called the Bonnie Hunt show, correct? You're, you're, you're crossing timelines just a bit. Okay. Bonnie came later. Okay. Bonnie, Bonnie was about three or so years after, no, about two years after Rockstar. Okay. Okay. So my gotcha question, and it's, mm-hmm. it is one of the most joyous videos uh, out on YouTube. Um, and, and I'm going to tell everybody right now. Type in Bonnie Hunt show during commercial or, or whatever in, in YouTube. <laughs> it, yeah. it is the Nate Morton drum cam. And, uh, you know, the talk show is going out to commercial and you guys are doing kind of, a you know, this real swinging jazz piece. And then it turns into like a five minute long Nate Morton drum show. <laughs> so that. Uh. Okay, go on. <laughs> so that that's my one gotcha question. But I mean, you you are absolutely laying down this this sick, you know, jazz groove and you can hear the band in the background. And then all of a sudden, like you're doing, you know, the intro to Honky Tonk Woman uh, in the middle of it. <laughs> um, you know, it, it just it's clear that you guys are just having so much fun, you know, during this commercial break for, for the, for the talk show. But there's this one particular moment in the video where you look over at somebody else in the band and and go, Oh, (laughs) 
I mean, it just it looked like so much fun, um, you know, so so I had to ask about that because it just looks like you guys are just having a blast doing that. Sure. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you about that. So so that band was let me think here. There was a sax player in that band named Mike Nelson. If memory serves, Mike Nelson, but the uh, the musical director of that band was a guy named Nicholas Pike, and these, so Mike is off camera, Nicholas is off camera. Um, Nicholas Pike was the musical director, and the piano player in that band was uh, a ridiculous piano player and fellow Berkeley alum, a guy named Cheche Alera, and Cheche has 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 gone on to do am- like uh, amazing things. The last, let's see, the last, the last I was in. Let's see, the last thing I saw that Cheche was up to was I believe he was MDing Barbara Streisand. <laughs> and I believe that he just won a Grammy for a Latin American record that he just produced, I believe. So Cheche is doing very, 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 very well. And he's an exceptional musician and he's a hilarious dude just in general. Um, and then the bass player in that band, uh, similarly accomplished player, is a guy named Reggie Hamilton, who I lovingly refer to as, well, I'll tell you the story. So we're rehearsing. In fact, we were rehearsing for that show, for the Bonnie Hunt show. And a guy walked up to Reggie as we were on break like a kid, like a kid came up to Reggie and he goes, Oh my God, you're, you're that guy, Mr. Uh, the, the legend. And so ever since that moment, Reggie <laughs> has been lovingly referred to by me as Mr. The legend, Mr. The legend. That's <laughs> so, fantastic. Reggie, Mr. The legend, Hamilton and, uh, and Cheche, myself, Nicholas Pike and Mike Nelson. So that gig was such a fun gig because once we were off and into commercial, we pretty much could just, you know, go nuts. We could pretty much just do whatever we wanted to because we weren't on camera and we were just kind of amusing ourselves. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're surrounded by guys, Reggie and, and, and Cheche, uh, in, in the rhythm section who can basically go anywhere that you go, it's very liberating because you really don't feel like you have to limit yourself at all. And you really don't, you, do you understand what I'm saying, Jamie? No, like, have I, you had that feeling? I, I, absolutely. Feeling sometimes when you play in bands, especially as a drummer, sometimes we play in bands with guys, and we're kind of like, all right, I really can't go too nuts, because if I go too nuts, I'm either going to lose someone in the band, time-wise, or it's going to be, be like, they're going to, it's going to fall apart, and basically they're going to look at me like, what are you, what are you doing? What are yeah, you doing? It's your and fault that this like train wrecked, right? Yeah. Right, right. So you have to, like, there's certain things you're like, okay, I know that I can't really superimpose this pother with them or I can't really do that. Whereas with Reggie and, 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 and Cheche, I mean, there was, there was no, you know, there was none of that. Well, I, um, I, I, can I tell a quick random story? Absolutely. I mean, I'm sitting here giggling just thinking about the video. I mean, it's just, it's, well, it's I, epic. I, this, is, this is a story that has to do with losing musicians or not. Okay. okay? All right. Uh, so I used to play... Uh, in a band, a trio. And, and now, are, are most of your listeners, Jamie, uh, uh, younger, older, our age? I think we have a fair swath of everybody, but I'm going to say the, the great majority of our listeners are going to be of the same vintage of Jamie and Nate. Okay, good. So then I can use a little bit of naughty language? Sure, of course. 
<laughs> okay. If it's if it's really bad, I'll just beep it out in post production. But yes, the there you go. the, there you go. the floor is yours. Oh, <laughs> there you go. So well, I feel as though I need to give you the proper quote for the full impact. Okay. So I'm playing in this trio in Boston, and it just so happens that the bass player in this trio is a guy named Baron Brown, and Baron Brown has been around for for quite some time and has played with you know you name it, but. Um, you know, he, he's uh, played in Steps Ahead and with Steve Smith for a long time yeah. um, and others. So at one point we're playing the gig and I, I guess it was my drum solo or something. And I was a little, you know, music school student. So I was trying to do some clever whatever. I don't even know what. And the band got a little bit loose at a certain point. And, and then we, you know, came back together. And on the set break, I went to Baron and the other uh, musician in the band. And I said, guys, I'm totally sorry. You know, I, I think I got a little crazy there and maybe, you know, threw you guys on the drum solo. And Darren <laughs> looks at me and he puts his finger in the middle of my chest and he goes, you're not going to lose me, little mother. I play with problems. <laughs> I loved that. And at the time, I fell on the floor laughing. And even now, recounting, like, I bet I laugh every time I think about that. You're not going to lose me, little motherfucker. I'm a cop. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, oh, man, it was great. It was great. So, anyway, back to the Bonnie thing. So, the Bonnie thing was a fun uh, study in jazz for me because I don't consider myself a jazz drummer uh, as evidenced by the playing on that video <laughs> but it was nice to be in a context where um, you know you could reach you know you could reach and you could try things and you could go places and so you'll notice if you listen closely that even though it's kind of going further and further bizarre it's all you know triggering one thing you know Cheche plays one Thing that triggers me to do something different that triggers Reggie to go somewhere even further than that, that then has Cheche go somewhere else. And, you know, it's just nice to be in that in that context. Absolutely. Well, I mean, and it's just band chemistry at that point, you know, to, Completely. to be able to trust your other guys. So and at that point, too, you know, it's like I, I sometimes I, I've, I've come across that video and I'll just laugh or whatever. But, you know, it's also being in that mode of doing that four or five days a week you know, for weeks on end. It's like, I, frankly, I couldn't do that today. Like just, just that, just being in that vibe, it takes time to get into, you know what I mean? Sure. Um, and so because I haven't done that for quite some time, that's sort of like a muscle that's got some cobwebs on it for me, uh, you know, in my brain. So it would take me a second to get back to that. But yeah, looking back on that, that was a lot of fun. A lot, a lot of fun. Well, as evidenced in the video that I'm referring to, I mean, it just looks like you guys were having a blast. And, and I want all of our listeners to go check it out because it is <laughs> it is just one of those classic drummer videos of a guy having a blast playing, you know, so it's it, it's good stuff. So, Nate, let's let's fast forward a little bit, because I, I think you're probably most well-known for being the drummer on NBC's The Voice. And without any doubt, you know, uh, it's it's got to be a thrill knowing that you're playing and 12, 15 million people are going to be watching. That ha That has to be a thrill. And, you know, I've talked to other drummers and they say, gosh, what what a gig, you know, what a great gig that must be. Because, honestly you get to play every style you you i mean it's 
it's just an all encompassing gig that is, I would say, supremely high stakes, so to speak. Um, but what I would really like to do, you know, tell us how you ended up in that gig with The Voice. But I really want to kind of get behind the scenes with you as much as you're allowed, certainly, because it's not just playing, you know, a couple of hours, you know, on Monday and Wednesday night. It's it's not like that. I know that there's so much work that goes into to being the drummer on that show. So tell us a little bit about how you landed there first. Okay, the path that led to the voice begins with the well quite frankly i mean it begins with the rock star situation because that was the first time that i played with sasha and paul uh as a rhythm section together and that rhythm section sasha paul myself went on to be uh the rhythm section for two seasons of that show we were the rhythm section for a couple of other tv shows that never made it to air a couple of projects that were like, Oh, this is going to be this show. And then it never quite aired. But again, it was another situation that we were involved in together as a unit. Um, at a certain point we were the rhythm section in shares band. When Mark Schulman left to, um, to, to tour with pink, I took over the, 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 the seat in the share band, uh, at Caesar's palace. So that was another opportunity where Paul and Sasha and myself were playing. We toured with Paul Stanley together. We've done sessions in town together. And so just over time, We've become, you know, to, 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 to Paul's credit, Paul, my big brother and musical director, uh, he's basically kept us together as a unit. And so it just so happens that we've gone from one gig to the other as a rhythm section unit. And that's what happened with The Voice. When The Voice came along, uh, Paul continued to be in touch with Mark Burnett uh, after Rockstar. And Mark Burnett said, hey, I've got this idea that I'm, you know, pitching to NBC on Tuesday. It's a music reality show I want to bring over uh, from uh, Holland. And, you know, I'll, I'll let you know. And so I'll let you know became rehearsals start February 9th or whatever it was. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and the rest is history, you know, seven, seven years ago and still going. Sure. Well, and it, it, it's been a great ride, uh, and I hope that it lasts forever. You know what I mean? I hope that I'm, not, you know, becomes the longest running show in television history, um, because uh, it's it's like I said, it's been a, it's been a great ride, and having done other TV shows, a lot of the time you get you know a season, maybe right. less, right? Um, you know, or, or your season gets abbreviated. So when I got the call to do the voice. I thought to myself, oh, this is awesome. You know, this will be like a, like a solid three months of work. At least I, you know, I hope, <laughs> I hope this will be three months of work. You know what I mean? And then cut to seven years later and here we are. Um, well, I, you know, so I'm no, no, it's been phenomenal. I'm no expert on television by any stretch of the imagination, but I've always heard that it's one of the most fickle businesses that you can be involved in. And I, I, I sure as heck am a musician and I know how fickle that business is. And here is Nate Morton, who is <laughs> managed to cross pollinate into both at one time. <laughs> so, yeah, well, you know, man, I, I, it's, it's, you know how when you're playing sometimes and you're just like, you just, you find yourself like in the zone, like you're just like, oh my God, this feels like the pocket, this feels so good. This is like so grooving right now. This is like, this is so jamming. And the second you start to think about it, it goes away. Sure. I feel that way about the voice. 
I, I don't like to think about it that much because I'm afraid that if I dwell on it too much, I'll make it disappear. So, yes, I just, I just like to continue floating in it and enjoying it and, 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 and thinking about it as little as possible. Sure. Well, and, and you know, somehow in, in my line of questioning, I managed to completely gloss over playing with Cher and Paul Stanley. Pro- probably mm. probably not small deals in your life. Um. <laughs> no, no. Now, what do you want to do? Do you want to do you want to do you want to glide over to Cher and Paul Stanley? Or do you want me to continue and give you the the, the, the day in the life on the voice? Well, you know, I, I want both, but you know, so here's what I will say, you know, I I know that I grew up a huge kiss fan. Okay. That makes, that makes two of us grew up a huge kiss fan. And how could you not love, you know, Peter Chris, Eric Carr, Eric Singer later on, you know, I mean, these guys all had just big monstrous drum sets and, and, you know, they're, they're playing in the biggest band in the world. My, remember the tank? Oh, remember sure. The tank? Like the, 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 the big set piece? Yeah. Drums are on? That was Creatures of the Night Tour, man. That was <laughs> that was unbelievable, which is, you know, um, so yeah, I mean, I grew up a huge Kiss fan, and I know that, that during that time, this would have been, you know, right after, I guess, Rockstar Supernova, uh, or right, right around there. Paul Stanley had done a solo record and wanted to go out on the road. So he approached you guys to be his band, his touring band. So my one question about Paul Stanley is, is how awesome was it? And were you the whole time you're sitting back there playing? Were you going back to the 12 year old Nate Morton and going, I'm Peter Chris. I mean, seriously. Okay. First of all, the I'm I, first of all the six year old Nate Morton because I was into them from the time that I was that young okay like six seven years old okay right, right. and absolutely um, <laughs> Paul is I mean I hate to I hate to use this overused word because everybody says everything is awesome oh my god this is awesome oh it's awesome oh it's awesome but Paul is literally awesome like he's like it's I have a I have a Paul Stanley story and I've told it about a million times, um, and so I apologize if if anyone listening has heard it before, but it bears repeating. Um, so we were in rehearsals for the, the the touring that we did with Paul, and so it's it's the house band from the show, right? So it's my Paul, musical director Paul, and then it's also of course Paul Stanley. And we're playing a song, and Paul Stanley is literally wailing at the top of his lungs, like you would think we were playing Wembley arena. Like he is wailing, going for it. And so we finished the song and, and Paul Merkovich, our musical director says, Hey, listen, you know, Paul, um, we're going to be in here for a while, you know, rehearsing. And so you could probably take it easy. <laughs> lay not, lay know, back a little. <laughs> What's that? Uh, say, I lay back a little kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. You can lay back. You can, you can take it easy. You know, you can kind of, you know, just mark it, you know, you don't have to you know, blow out your voice. Paul Stanley, goes and I, you you can't see me but he he just like got this like this posture like this like straight up posture and he goes hey man look i got two speeds on and off <laughs> that was it man yeah. that was it like it was one of those things where i just went that's why you're that guy 
Yeah. That's why you're that guy. You know what I mean? There's never, there is never, like, phone it in doesn't exist in Paul Stanley's universe. Um, take it easy doesn't exist in Paul Stanley's universe. It's like the dude is 100% all the time. So if there's, you know, uh, if there's 20 people in the room or if there's 20,000 people in the room, you get the same level of intensity and the same commitment to delivering it, you know, 100%. And so that was my, that was my moment. I like, I, I, I don't even know. Like, it, I will never forget that. Um, it that's just so awesome. Just like that, yeah, that's why you're that guy. That's you know? so, so yeah, awesome. So that was a lot of fun. Lots and lots and lots of fun. And Paul is one of the few, just in, in spite of the magnitude of his rock legend status, he's just a cool friggin' dude. Yeah. He's a cool friggin' dude. Like the phone could ring in five minutes and it could be Paul Stanley just going like, yo, what's up, Nate? Just was on tour doing so-and-so and such and such saw whatever thought of you wanted to call and see how you're doing wow. like that, you know, and yeah. that's not, that's a rare commodity. That's a rare commodity. You don't get that from, from, from every artist that you work with. Well, it, for sure you don't get that. And you know, it's good to hear these kinds of stories because let's face it, you know, Gene and Paul, um, you know, they get a lot of press, but unfortunately they get a lot of negative press as well. So it's, it's great to hear a good story about Paul blowing it out at all times and being a nice guy. You know, that, that makes me feel great hearing that for sure. So, sure. sure. And it's funny too, because it's like, he, 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 he and share a certain quality, which is that they both know that they are icons. Like they both know, like Paul Stanley knows that he's a freaking rock legend and share knows that she's a freaking iconic sure. artist, you know, performer, but neither of them take themselves too seriously, which is a really great quality to have. Yeah. You, you know what I'm saying? Sure. Like they get it, but it's hard to, it's, it's kind of hard to put into words, but it's just a very, it's easy to be relaxed around a Paul Stanley or around Cher. And as I said before, you know, there's certain artists that it's not easy to be relaxed around. Um, and so, yeah, no, they, they, they're, they're, they're really awesome. Well, you, you mentioned kind of the two of them in concert. Sure. Um, and so I thought I would address that because that that's a quality that they both share. Well, I mean, it's great stuff. And I mean, you know, it's just such an impressive resume that, that you've built um, over the years, all these folks you've played with. And, you know, I, I'm going to do my best to segue back over to the voice. Um, you know, I, I mean, you're playing in front of millions of people every time you pick up a pair of sticks now and you know before we hit the record button we kind of addressed this a little bit it's not just the show i mean you're going into the studio i i I don't know how often and i want you to tell us but you're cutting singles with these contestants um it it's quite possible that you are the most listened to drummer on itunes on any given day i mean (laughs) 
<laughs> Seriously. It sounds funny when you put it like that. And, you know, I was never, ever um, nervous about my gig, Jamie, until now when you uh, mentioned <laughs> so many times how many people are hearing <laughs> Oh, I man. Never, look, never, look, never if, if I'm the guy that just for that. if I'm the guy that just bad vibed Nate Morton's gig on The Voice. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Jamie. I never thought about it before, but now, thanks to you, it'll always be in my head. Well, you know. You know, you know, you know it's funny, actually, what I was doing. We were playing Rockstar. Someone emailed me, and I'm really easy to find online, and I, and I always do my best to try to get back to anyone who ever, you know, sends me questions or emails me or whatever. But someone emailed me, and they said something along the lines of, you know, hey, you're doing a good job on that show. You know, we enjoy you. And then they ended it by saying, remember... Uh, what did it say? It said something like, remember, millions of drummers are depending on you to represent <laughs> us well. No, no pressure. <laughs> something like that. And I was like, oh my God. I never thought about it like that. Come on. No pressure, Nate. Yeah. No pressure. It's, it's up to you to make sure you don't set drumming back 300 years right, on the right. next episode. And, and the thing is, too, Rockstar, Rockstar was not live right rockstar was shot and then edited so it wasn't live so if something if if the worst happened it could be fixed you know something could be changed or whatever whereas during the live shows of the voice it's a hundred percent live right so you know i sometimes think to myself like in the middle of like a quiet moment on the show if i just like jumped out from behind the kit and went running screaming across the stage like that would go out to the airwaves and so I'll tell you, I, by the way, Jamie, if you can't tell, I'm kind of ADD and I kind of jump around a lot. So I'm, Same. Gonna, I'm like a house of pain. I'm, I jump around more than a house of pain. <laughs> it, 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 thank you. Thank you. Old guy. Old guy. Uh, music reference there. That was that was a dad joke, Nate. That was a total dad joke. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 I mentioned to you earlier that I took lessons on piano. Right. And so the piano, the, my, my, my uh, experience in the piano universe was primarily concert piano, classical piano. And so not only would I play recitals periodically, but I would go and I would hear, you know, people play. I would go and hear my instructor uh, play a recital uh, or, a, you know, a, a concert at a, at a symphony hall. You know what I mean? And so... I remember one time I went to, I think it was the Meyerhoff. I think that's what it was called. The Meyerhoff Symphony Hall or Meyerhoff, something like that, concert hall. And my instructor, who at the time was a, a woman named Catherine Jacobson, is playing. And it's just piano. It's a solo piano concert. And the place is packed and whatever the capacity of it is. And I'm sitting up in the balcony. And literally the urge, because it's so quiet, and she was playing like this super quiet section of a song. I just wanted to scream at the top of my lungs just to see what it would do. Like, it was so quiet. And I just wanted to go, yeah! Scream, right? And so literally, I found myself first grabbing the chair to stop myself from doing it. And then I began to actually get scared that I wasn't going to be able to stop myself from screaming at the top of my lungs. And I got up and I left. I got up and I left the, the hall and went out into the lobby 
gather myself because I literally started to lose confidence in my ability to prevent myself from screaming at the top of my lungs. <laughs> now, that probably says something about how much, you know, that probably says something about um, where concert piano was registering in my brain. Uh, I, think yes, it- I think about that sometimes on The Voice now, although I've not done it and I find that the urge has, has, has gone, you know, has, has gone quite down to a manageable level now. But that um, was, that yes, was too much, sometimes. too much animal in your diet from the Muppet show is what that is. Something like that. Yeah. Well, and you know what? It's funny. I mean, I know that you're, you're joking, but on a, on a sort of a cosmic level, I think you're right. I mean, there was something about, there was something about the button down, very, very serious, um, you know, uh, nature of concert piano that that it did it had it had a part of me inside wanting to scream at the top of my lungs and i think that because on the voice i'm playing drums and i'm wailing around and keeping up a hell of a racket i think that that's me getting the scream right you know what i'm saying i get to scream on the drum set, and i do by the way i scream at the top of my lungs when i'm playing uh the drums sometimes and so i'm able to sort of exercise that 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 part exercise and exorcise sure. <laughs> that part of my personality when I'm, you know, playing on the, on the, on the show. So I prevent myself from screaming at the top of my lungs while Carson is saying something poignant. Absolutely. Well, yeah, as, as he is prone to do. Um, yes. so, you know, all joking aside, you know, it's what, what, why? Well, I think, <laughs> I think your gig, Go ahead, buddy. no, 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 it's fine. Um, I think your gig is, and you've done a great job and, and for anybody that really wants to see, you know, you've got a lot of great drum cams from the show up on your YouTube channel, which I think is, is fantastic. Um, but I think your gig is one that, that a lot of us drummers are envious of in that, you do get to play so much different stuff and you're literally, you know, when you guys are in season, what is a typical week for you? How many hours are you behind the kit? You know, to walk us through a little bit of the behind the scenes stuff of what a typical day is uh, for Nate Morton. Sure. Um, well, first of all, to, to your, to your first point in terms of playing a lot of styles and, 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 you know, enjoying that and so on. If you were to flash back to me at Berkeley, if you had said, hey, man, what's your dream gig? I would have said Sting. I would have said Peter Gabriel. I would have said Phil Collins. Um, I would have said Madonna. And those are still all incredible gigs. And if the phone were to ring and it were to be any one of those you know, artists, I would be like, oh, my gosh. That said... In retrospect, if you were to ask me what my dream gig was, it would have been this. This gig didn't exist when I was in college. Uh, uh, A television show where you play a super wide variety of genres and you have the recording aspect and you have the, you know, sort of the... um, I don't even know. There's a band aspect to it because we've played together for so long. It would have been this. I would have said this, you know, but, uh, but as I said, this didn't exist back then. So to your point, I only mean that sort of the, the variety of things and the different elements involved make this a dream gig, you know, for me and, 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 and I enjoy it tremendously. And 
the more times that I speak to drummers and I say, yeah, you know, I'm a little bit ADD. If I do any one thing for too long, it kind of gets old. Many, 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 many drummers. Sure. Share the same thing. Absolutely. You know what I mean? They say, yeah, me too. And so in that respect, the fact that I'm changing, like literally our set list changes every week. You know, it's a different set of 10 songs or 15 songs or 20 songs. Um, so yeah, no, it's a, so it's a phenomenal gig in that respect. Now, uh, in terms of a day in the life, you'd be surprised, Jamie, how often I get messages or, or, or emails. Hey, besides the voice, what are you up to? <laughs> and you pointed out, yes, you pointed out, and I do, don't get me wrong. I do get in things when I can. I get in occasional sessions and occasional gigs when I can. But I think as you alluded to earlier, um, sometimes people are under the impression that we work Monday night and Tuesday night. Right. And then we're off five days, you know, a week. And the reality is it takes the other five days to put together what goes on on that Monday and that Tuesday. So in brief, I'll give you my weekly schedule, right? So the, the, the live shows uh, are, are, are our craziest time, okay? So our live shows, the schedule looks like this. Our quote-unquote week begins essentially on Wednesday, okay? Our week begins on Wednesday because that's the day that we get the songs for that week's Monday and Tuesday performances. And we learn those songs in the morning. Maybe there's 10 songs, 12 songs. We learn them in the morning, and we shoot quote-unquote reality with the coaches, with their contestants all day Wednesday, right? So that's usually a, anywhere from a 10 to a 13-hour day. Wow. Thursday, we do what's called second rehearsals, which is basically our second time seeing the contestant. We rehearse their song again. Each contestant gets, you know, a half an hour or so. And there's no cameras. That's just the band and the contestants. And we kind of solidify the arrangement if that needs to be done. And we just kind of dial it in. So that's Thursday. Friday, we go into a professional recording studio where we record full-length versions of the songs for iTunes, for the singles that come out uh, in conjunction with the contestant's performance of that song on the show. Right. So that's all day Friday. So all day Friday, we're in a recording studio. So then Saturday, we are on stage at Universal all day doing the run-through, camera blocking, rehearsal for audio, rehearsal for lights and all of that, all day Saturday for Monday's show. Sunday, we're on stage all day doing all of those same things for Tuesday's show. Monday, coming in the morning, dress rehearsal, break, Monday night show. Tuesday, same thing. Coming in Tuesday morning, dress rehearsal, break, Tuesday's show. And then Wednesday, it starts again. Wow. Wednesday, we get the songs for the next week. So that's my, that's my week during the live show. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's no uh, going to the beach and surfing. Uh, I mean, not unless you want to do it at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night or maybe <laughs> five in the morning. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's, and you know, I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of musicians probably realize how much prep goes into it, but I think a lot of people don't realize just how busy you are. Now, I made the comment earlier and you laughed, you know, about the singles that come out, you know, via iTunes and, and all the different, you know, digital media. You guys are spending all day in a studio each Friday, you know, recording, you know, a handful of songs, you know, and, and I made the joke, you may be the most 
you know, heard drummer on iTunes in any given week, you know, um, and you laughed, but I'm being dead serious. You are, <laughs> I, you know, well, I mean, I, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't really think about it a lot, but yeah, we've, we've done a lot of, a lot of stuff, a lot of, a lot of material out there. Yeah. A lot of material floating around. It's funny, you know, my, um, I have a friend named Michael Thompson and he's a guitar player. Primarily he's been a session guy for the majority of his career. Sure. And, you know, Michael said something funny, which is, well, it wasn't funny. It was, it was profound. And it was kind of why he's, it, it, it was kind of why he has primarily, um, you know, focused on being a session guitar player because he basically said, you know, live gigs are great. They're amazing. The energy is fun. It's fantastic. But a recording lives forever. Sure. Yeah. I mean, as I've gotten older, you know, I enjoy the the session work so much more because it, it really is something. It's a lasting legacy. You know, I mean, you can go you can go play 2000 gigs, you know, uh, over the course of the next, you know, 10 years or whatever. And at the end of the day, unless somebody has really good video footage of it, it just kind of goes away. You know, it's, it goes it's, away. It goes it, away, and it's interesting too because, like, for example, I I loved. There was a show that I used to love uh, when I was younger. It came on PBS, and it was called um, Rock School. And Herbie Hancock, I believe, had some part in the production of it. And each week, they would sort of break down a different style. And it was like this this British band. Uh, and in each musician would go through and talk about what defined the particular style they were doing, and they would play it and. Uh, you know, the bass player would say, right, so when you're playing reggae music, the <laughs> accent typically falls on the three. Do, 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 you know, we'll play it. And I've since gone back and found lots of those on YouTube, and I love it. So, yeah. what's the point? The point is, I sometimes wonder, like, years from now, if anyone will ever go, yeah, remember there was that one show that was on NBC? That yeah, uh, <laughs> the Voice, right? Oh yeah, that was a really, really good band. And because the internet, because of, because the internet basically keeps everything around forever. Yeah, you'll probably still be able to find some of that stuff, you know. And so I do kind of think about it in that regard. It's kind of neat. I kind of go like, oh, so there will be some evidence that uh, that I was on the planet once upon a time. <laughs> yeah, for, yeah, well, for sure. I mean, same thing with this show. You know, I mean, we're a fairly new show. You know, um, and it's, you know, I, I thought to myself what would I have wanted to listen to when I was younger? You know, it, it, mm. it, had podcasts been a thing when I was just starting out as a drummer or I was three or four years in, into being a drummer, starting my first bands, who are the guys I would have wanted to hear from? So it, it is evergreen content and it does stay around forever. And um, I'm really know. glad you mentioned that, by the way, because in, in, in circling back briefly, to you mentioning the drum cams, I do those. Um, I mean, I'm no, you know, I'm I'm by no stretch like a chops meister. Like I'm not, you know, playing like a bunch of notes and doing a bunch of crazy stuff. However, when I was a kid, I didn't have access to that kind of stuff. If I ever saw a show like that, or if I ever heard drums but couldn't see the guy, there was no way for me to know what was going on. You know, or right. or for example, in, in, in kind of tied to that is this idea of where I grew up, you know, and this is, you know, in the dark ages before everyone could email and everyone could find everyone online uh, before Facebook and all of that. But when I grew up, 
I remember this very specifically. I dug Anton Fig. Like to me, Anton Fig had like <laughs> the gig of life. Oh yeah, man. And so I wrote him, like literally wrote him with a pen and paper, <laughs> a fan letter. And I actually had to fold it and place it into an envelope yeah. and lick the envelope and put a stamp on it. And I wrote, you know, Anton Fig, care of David Letterman show, you know, whatever the address was at the time. And I dropped it in the mail. And then, um, I mean, I'm going to say two months later, you know, maybe I got back. Cause I'm sure that he would have gotten tons of fan mail at the time. I, I, I got back a, a, a letter from him saying, you know, thanks, whatever, whatever, whatever. And so I guess my only point is that I didn't really have real access to guys. I couldn't really watch what Anton was doing. I couldn't really like text or call or email Anton Fig. That was something that was missing for me as I was growing up. This relates back to you just saying what you wanted to be able to put out there because you think back on what you wanted to have, would have wanted to check out. And so for me, that's what the drum cams are. For me, the drum cams are that. It's, it's me in, in, in some small way making an attempt to provide a certain amount of access to people who might not otherwise be able to sort of see what's going on or hear what's going on or whatever. And I think that hopefully, hopefully maybe there's kids out there or grown-ups out there who, uh, who go, you know, oh, so that's what he's doing or, oh, so that's what, you know, whatever, you know. So that's the whole point behind that stuff. It's definitely not like a look at me, look at me, look at me. It's more like a, I'm trying to share, you know, a little glimpse of what it is that I do on the show and how I function in that band and so on. Well, I think they're absolutely superb. Um, it, it's a great tool for all of us, you know, I mean, and, and you, uh, <laughs> you know, I always read the little, the, you know, the little caption you put in there and, and you're, you sell yourself way short, Nate. You say, you know, if you're looking for a, you know, a gospel chops burnmeister, you know, this is. Yeah, no, that's not me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you say that, but, you know, um, yeah, I think you've got more chops than you give yourself credit for. But, you know, I, I was saying to one of my other guests that have been on the show, I rip off every drummer I see. We all do. You know, I mean, when we go see another guy playing or girl, we go, oh, man, how is he or she doing that? I'm going to incorporate that into my playing. And the point of me saying all this is those drum cams give fuel to all of us to say, oh, you know, I never thought about doing a fill that way in this song. You know, that's what's so cool about it is when you put that stuff out there. People can use it and adapt it to their own gig or their own style of playing. So it's just something really cool that you do. So keep those coming, please. I will do my best. I'll do my, you know, it's really nice. I, it, first of all, first of all, thank you so much for saying that. That is very nice of you to say. And it's also very gratifying to me to hear that because that's precisely my intent. And it's fun because sometimes I get, Kind of like what you're saying. Sometimes I get an email or a Facebook message that says, oh, I never thought of going to halftime on the pre-chorus of whatsoever song. We play this in my cover band. I'm going to do that now. Right. And I go, cool. <laughs> that's really neat. Like, you know, like that's, that's like the, the, the biggest, you know, compliment to me. It's like that you could take something that I did and incorporate it or use it or whatever. So yeah, exactly. it's, really, it's really great. I, I, 
I enjoy it, and I will definitely continue to do it as much as I possibly can. Well, and, and here's one more inside baseball kind of question, and, and I think I already know the answer to this, but presumably being that you're doing TV and all that stuff, I'm guessing mm-hmm. there's never been a song you've played on The Voice that hasn't been to a click. You are 99.5% accurate. Okay. Um, almost everything that we play on the show is to a click, even if it doesn't sound like it. Like there are sections where things may be rubato or, um, you know, uh, tempos may speed up or slow down. And 99.5% of the time, that is all on click. Uh, the, we just did a tune recently called Defying Gravity from uh, the musical uh, Wicked. And, um, and I threw that up online and I actually mentioned that online because it, that song speeds up and slows down and it's all on click. And we, I mean, let's see, the rare occasion when something might not be on click, um, if something is so sparsely arranged, for example, if it's just acoustic guitar and maybe like piano and cajon, let's say, well, something like that doesn't have to be on click, especially if, for example, the contestant starts it by themselves singing and playing guitar. Right. Something like that might not be on click. Um, uh, maybe if it's just a contestant, if it's just a contestant singing and accompanying themselves on piano, something like that might not be on click. But a lot of the time we add, you know, pre-recorded strings or we add other things to it uh, that, that are included in some of the tracks that we're sometimes playing along with and musical tracks, that is. And in order for, you know, Paul or our other keyboard player, Eric Daniels, to go back and either program strings, let's say, or arrange strings, or in order for Paul to have a string section come in and, and pre-record strings that we'll play along to. Uh, I'm using strings as an example, but it could be a rhythm. I'm sorry. It could be a a horn section or something of that nature. It kind of has to be on click. Right. Because if you're going to do, let's say three tracks of an eight piece string section playing a part over something that, uh, retards into a final chord at the end, those three passes have to all be in time with one another. And there's got to be some sort of way that as we do it on the show, I can be in time with what that is. So we generally speaking have to find a way to, to, to click it up. Right. So at the end of the day, kids learn to play with a click. We have said that before on this program. Um, it's, it's amazing what you guys do now, Nate, I, I appreciate you so much coming on the show. This has been so awesome. Um, one of our traditions here on the drum shuffle we ask every guest, um, you know, kind of as we wrap up, give us your one good piece of advice for a drummer or another musician who may be listening. And it can be anything you want it to be. But, you know, how to get further in the business, practice routines, whatever the case may be. Um, I have a feeling I know where you're going to go with this. But just give us, you know, words of wisdom from Nate Morton for somebody listening to the show. Okay. Um, okay. This is going to be, I'm going to give you two, two little bits. Okay. So, and they're both very, 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 very simple. 
so once upon a time when I was, you know, studying, when I was, you know, coming up, when I was an aspiring musician, someone said to me, always play with as many different musicians in as many different styles and genres and contexts as you possibly can. So every opportunity that you have to play, take it. So if that's country, if that's jazz, if that's Latin, if that's pop, uh, if that's R&B, always take every possible opportunity because every opportunity is, you know, presents itself uh, such that you can grow and learn from it and it informs, you know, everything else that you do. So that's always sort of been my philosophy. Um, I've always wanted to try to do as much as I possibly could in as many different ways as I possibly could. And that obviously pertains to me. Uh, and it has worked out that way that I've ended up playing on a show where I'm playing <laughs> all these different genres sure. and different styles all the time. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing for me is always play the song. Always play the song. Um, that's always been, you know, uh, super important thing for me. Um, I, I try not to ever let myself get focused on, ooh, right here I'm going to play this really cool lick. I'm going to, I got to get this neat stuff. I'm working on this cool polyrhythm. I'm going to shoehorn it into this transition here. Um, I try to think as little as possible about those kinds of things, and I try to think as much as I possibly can about just playing music and playing the song. Um, so those would be my two little bits of advice. Those are good bits of advice. Um, you know, I think it's it's wise to not say no unless you just absolutely can't do it, right? It's, sure, you sure. Or unless you're going to put yourself in a situation where you're playing with, you know, musicians that you... You know, there are, there are not at your level, for example, but outside of that. Yeah, a absolutely. Like for example, for example, uh, I played with Natalie Cole, oh. not a big band drummer, you know, wow. and so it would have been easy for me to go when that phone rang and it was, you know, to go and play with Natalie to kind of go like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not the guy. Instead of doing that, I kind of went, OK, this is my opportunity to work on playing with brushes. This is my opportunity to work on reading big band charts. And so that gig was very much for me a crash course in big band drumming. So when the band, I mentioned this because I, I have a video that's up, uh, I don't even, I don't remember the song now, but it was a big band kind of tune. And essentially I pointed out that on Natalie, we would do sound check and when the band would break for like a dinner break between sound check and the gig, I would bring my snare into the closet with my brushes and I would work on playing brushes <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a closet somewhere or in an empty room somewhere between sound check and the gig. And then I would go to the gig because I was always trying to, at that time, get better at, you know, what that, what that was. Um, and I looked at it as an opportunity to try to add that to my bag. So, yeah, that's kind of, I, I've been fortunate to have a lot of opportunities like that where I was able to immerse myself in something and then try to learn and grow from it. Well, clearly it has paid massive dividends for you, Nate. And, uh, you know, we we look forward to seeing you every week. It's just uh, it's great drumming. I mean, it really is. And, uh, you know, again, I thank you so much for your time coming on the show. It is an open invitation. Um, you know, we we kind of scratched the surface on a lot of different things, but I would love to have you back when your schedule will allow um, to 
to dig in even deeper, man, because um, this is good stuff. It really is. Anytime. Anytime. Awesome. Anytime. Here's one thing that I didn't get to. I know that you've got a new record, right? That's that's. There you go. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that and where we can find you online with that. Sure. Uh, well, the record the record is called Funky Jazzy Stuff, and, and that was basically a, a, a joke that I said once. Uh, <laughs> and and Kenwood, who was uh, my partner on that record, uh, essentially it just stuck, and so the record ended up being called Funky Jazzy Stuff. Because that is what it is. It's um, it's an instrumental record, and it incorporates a lot of the different stuff that I sort of grew up listening to um, in a funk, R and B. Uh, I, I you know I hate to say smooth jazz because it's not exactly smooth jazz. Um, fusion sort of context. Um, so yeah, so that record came about because a producer named Kenwood Anderson kind of reached out to me, and he and I were actually at Berkeley at the same time as well. And he said, "Hey man, you need a record." Let's work out a record together. And eventually he culled together the, the, the bulk of the material and we kind of went back and forth on things. And I went, oh, can this go like this? Or can that section be longer or shorter? But really that's, you know, Kenwood was kind of the master producer behind it. And, um, and yeah, we came together and to put together this really cool uh, disc. I'm pretty, pretty excited about it. I'm not pretty excited about it. I'm very excited about it. It's good stuff. You know, I, I was checking it out, um, I guess last week, you know, before we nailed down a time to do this call, um, I was checking it out online. It, it, it's really good stuff. So, uh, t- give us the, the web address on where folks can pick that up. Uh, you can get that. You can go to, uh, natemortondrums.com. Uh, or you can get it from CD Baby. Oh, okay, cool. You guys are, yeah. It's at CDBaby.com. I guess that's what it would be. And uh, you can find it under my name, Nate Morton. Uh, you can find it under the name Kenwood Anderson. Or you can search Funky Jazzy Stuff. Excellent. Well, everybody needs to check it out because it is a great record. Um, so yeah, it's fun. It's y- fun. It is. So kids. It's a lot of fun. And, if, and again, that kind of getting back to the, to the, uh, to the Bonnie Hunt idea of sort of being able to kind of just follow what, what, what you feel, you know, yeah, and, and feeling like I don't really have any limitations here. I can just play and be uh, experimental in that context. You know, uh, it was nice to do that. Like it was nice to kind of go, what if this section was a go-go feel, you know, which kind of harkens back to my time growing up outside of DC. Um, it, it was, it's, it, it was nice. It was, it was a very uh, cathartic, project to be involved with. So yeah, Kenwood, I owe Kenwood a great debt of gratitude for all the hard work that he put into it. And I'm really proud of it. Well, it's, it's good stuff. And you know, the way you just described it, it sounds like it's exactly the opposite of, of doing the voice every week, you know, (laughs) where you, you can just do whatever you want to do on your own record, right? (laughs) Well, it is, it is. There's definitely a thing about, about doing your own project, you know? Um, and it's funny because it, it creates a really nice balance, quite frankly. Sure. Um, balance, you know, I, I have a couple of favorite words and one of them is relationships uh, or relationship. And then another is balance. And uh, for me, it creates a really nice balance because sure, on the voice, we're playing the songs, we're playing the, the thing and we're there to serve the artist and so on. And then on the other side of things, you know, I got this project that I got to do with Kenwood where it was like, hey, let's experiment with this. Let's experiment with that. And he and I got to sort of play the role of being the artists 
and, and, and sort of guiding the ship from there. So, um, so yeah, it created, it creates definitely a nice balance. Well, it's good stuff. And I encourage all of, uh, all of our listeners to go, uh, to go check it out and pick up a copy because it is really good stuff. Nate, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Um, Again, open invitation. Anytime you want to come on the drum shuffle, we would love to have you because it's been super educational and entertaining. Um, We really do appreciate your time. Absolutely. Well, Jamie, I'll, you know what, I'll tell you what, I'll leave that to you, my friend. If you uh, feel like, oh, well, here's these other 10 questions I didn't get to ask Nate or whatever. Just reach out. We'll get, we'll get it on the calendar and we'll make it happen. Fantastic. Nate, thank you again so much. And we'll talk to you real soon. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. So there you have it. I told you it was going to be a fantastic episode. We want to thank Nate so much for his time. And as you can tell by that conversation, just truly one of the nice guys in the business. Uh, just a fantastic uh, episode all the way around, I think. Thank you so much for listening. As always, reach out to us at the Drum Shuffle Podcast at gmail.com. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com. You can find me hanging out over at jamieeds.com. So until next time, may your heads stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers. Cheers.